Father, we thank you for this time and we pray now that you would speak by your Holy Spirit into our lives. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and how great you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let my people go. That is a slogan that has become part of the vocabulary of freedom fighters everywhere. Not least Martin Luther King and before him the African-American spiritual go-down Moses. If you asked anybody today, certainly anybody in the West, if uh, freedom is a good thing, uh, they would say, well, of course it is. Of course, of course freedom is a great thing. Freedom is a basic human right, people would say. The worst thing you can do is to deprive someone of their freedom to, to be who they want to be. Um, the phrase, let my people go, comes from right here in Exodus in the Bible. But in, I guess in some people's minds, Christianity or, or perhaps more broadly religion and faith are, you know, are the thing that the world needs to be freed from. They are part of the problem, not the solution, people might say. You know, Christianity, well, it's all rigid rules and things that you can't do. And what you need to do is you need to leave all that behind and you need to embrace atheism where you can just do what you like and you can make your own path and you can be free but probe a little deeper and what you find is that it turns out there are very different ideas of what freedom actually is so you can see this if you think about politics can't you so you know those on the left will talk about freedom from oppression from inequality from injustice those on the right will say, no, the freedom that we need is freedom from red tape and, and state interference and taxation and so on. And very often, one set of freedoms appears to be at odds with another. And what is so often ignored is, is not so much what we must be freed from, but actually what we don't talk about is what we must be freed for. So think about a goldfish in a bowl. You know, in the bowl of water, there's the goldfish... And the goldfish is saying, I'm so constrained by this fishbowl. I wish I was free. But, well, if you remove the goldfish from the fishbowl, are they free, really? Or are they, in fact, constrained in a new, terrible, worse way than they ever were before? Well, yeah, of course, they're dead, aren't they? Pro tip for any goldfish owners. Don't take them out of the bowl. That's where they belong. So it turns out all talk about freedom is really a discussion about exchanging one set of constraints for another set of constraints. And the question is whether those constraints are good or bad. So if you want to be free to indulge your passion for playing the piano, well, you're almost going to ha certainly going to have to constrain the time that you spend playing video games. If you want to be free to go as far as you can as a, as a great tennis player, you're going to have to constrain your passion for pizza. See, all freedom involves constraints. But the point is, some constraints are good, some are bad. And when it, when it comes to let my people go, in chapters 5 and 6 of Exodus that we heard read, we need to realise the eight times that you hear that phrase, let my people go, in the book, it, it always continues. It always says, let my people go that they may worship me. Or as in uh, chapter 5, verse 2, that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. 
And there's more, you see, the problem for God's people, the reason they need to be let go, is that they're slaves to Pharaoh. He makes them work against their will. That's the problem, and God wants to free them to worship him. But here's the thing, this is fascinating, in the original language, the word for being a slave to Pharaoh, and the work that he gives them to do, and the word for worshipping God, they're all the same word, the same kind of root word underneath. Exodus is about how God's people move from being Pharaoh's servants to being God's servants. How they work, move from working for Pharaoh as his slaves to working for God. And at that point, we want to say kind of as his servants, but actually it's really the same thing and it's the same word and the same concept as his slaves. But the, of course, the question then is what kind of slaves and what kind of master are we talking about? What kind of work do they want their people to do? So many people say, well, no, God's a spoil sport and a killjoy and a harsh taskmaster. You can't trust him. You should avoid him. You don't want to be his servants. But that is the question, isn't it? Who is God? What is he really like? And who is Pharaoh and the, th- the, things that, the other things in life that we might be enslaved to? Which set of constraints, as it were, is the one that gives you true freedom? So do you see, these questions about freedom in our world today, they're really questions about which master you want in your life. Someone or something is going to be your master. No one is absolutely free from all constraints. Everyone serves someone or something. And what we're going to see in our remaining time now is the contrast between the kind of master who is like Pharaoh and enslaves us and God, who is a God of love. The kind of master it's a privilege to serve. So let's see how this works. Our question is, whom will we serve? Is it going to be tyrants like Pharaoh? Is it going to be a God of love? So two headings you can see on the handouts on on the back of the notice sheet if you want to follow. Whom will you serve? First, will it be an enslaving tyrant? Chapter 5, Pharaoh. Remember from... Last time, God has taken the initiative to rescue his people. And now, verse 1, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And the same thing gets repeated in verse 3. And an obvious question, I guess, is why this emphasis on a festival and a three days journey that they talk about in verse 3? It sounds rather less than what God has said he wants Moses to do with God's people, which is lead them out of Israel, out of Egypt for good. So why just talk about a festival? But in fact, worship is exactly what God has in mind as he wants to lead them out. He wants to set them free in order to worship him. And by putting it in terms of a, you know, a three days journey to do a festival in the wilderness, this is putting a kind of lesser request, first of all, across Pharaoh's desk, as it were and just seeing how he responds. And what it's going to prove is that even on this more minor request, he's not going to give way to God's authority, because as far as he's concerned, he is in charge. And what follows underlines that. So he replies, verse 2, Who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. 
So do you see what he's revealing about himself? He is ignorant of God. He doesn't know him. He's resistant to his authority. Why should I obey him? And that means he's hostile to his people. He will not let them go. And that is a summary of what godlessness literally looks like, isn't it? Don't know God, won't listen to him as a result, will make life miserable for his people. And that is, again, what we see in what follows. He's like the employer whose response to a request for time off is to increase your hours and cut your pay. So verse 7, take their straw away, make them find it themselves. Straw is what you need to make bricks, at least in those days. But verses 8 and 9, don't cut your expectations on the number of bricks. Increase the workload. And so the command gets cascaded down through the slave drivers and the overseers, verse 10. And by verse 14 over the page, the Israelite overseers are being hauled back in to explain to their managers why the number of bricks has gone down. Now, anyone who's worked in any kind of large organisation, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe the NHS, I'm just guessing, but other things like that, or education, many other fields in between, will recognise that dynamic of being asked to do more with less. And then, beyond that, then being held responsible when, surprise, surprise, this task turns out to be impossible. But this is not merely here as a parable about management and HR, but rather as a picture of sin itself. When we studied the letter to the Romans last term, we saw how the Bible talks about being slaves to sin and needing an exodus to be redeemed from that slavery to sin. But what we see here, and in fact what we see in the whole of, of, of this book of Exodus, is it's giving us a picture of being freed from sin in that way. And what we see here is a picture of what it looks like when sin enslaves us. You see, Pharaoh is like our idols. The things that we worship, alternatively, the things that we are enslaved to. Remember, it's the same word, the same concept, to worship or be a slave. It's the same thing. So when we worship money... We are slaves to money. It enslaves us like Pharaoh when we worship comfort or success or popularity or health and fitness or whatever it might be. If those things become the things that we live for, that we worship, will we become their slaves? And we will do anything for them. Because then they're our number one passion. And it becomes like an, you know, an addict. You know, the first hit is amazing but after that, every single hit destroys the body little by little and demands more and more while delivering less and less. It's nearly um, 20 years since the extraordinary moment when Johnny Wilkinson kicked a, a drop goal in the closing seconds of extra time for England against Australia in the final of the World Cup rugby for England to win their first and only so far, uh, Rugby World Cup. And Johnny Wilkinson, at that point, he was a national hero. And people praised his dedication to, to practice. And we heard all these stories about he was so dedicated to practicing his drop kicks. He would be out there on Christmas Day uh, making this happen. But I recently heard an interview with, with Johnny Wilkinson. He's long retired now from actually playing, but he talks about 
what followed that extraordinary victory. Um, and, you know, you would think that having achieved the goal and the dream, uh, he would have retired a happy man. But essentially what followed for Johnny Wilkinson was a breakdown. And uh, in the interview that I heard, he, he says over and over again, he says, when you finally get the one thing you've been living for, for your entire life, and every waking moment has been about this one thing that you finally achieve, he just kept saying these words. He kept saying, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And he felt utterly empty, utterly broken on the inside while he was going to all these press conferences and having people tell him how amazing and wonderful he was. No, there's nothing there. And it's devastating to hear that, isn't it? But for him, that pursuit of success is like the slave-driving Pharaoh. And actually, it will be the same for all of us. We make a single-minded goal like that. It, will, it demands more and more, and it delivers less and less. So we become enslaved in other ways, don't we? To, to the dream, you know, what is it? It's the career goal, the exam results, a marriage, the goals for our children, maybe. And we're, and we're prepared to sacrifice our time and the best of our waking hours and our energy and our money and our temper to get what we want, and yet does it deliver? So many find there is nothing there. Now the thing is, of course, it's one thing to stand here and say that. And we're probably quite good, actually, at spotting this when it happens in other people. You know, you can look at Johnny Wilkinson and you can say, yeah, it was, you know, was it really worth it? But we're much less good at spotting it in ourselves, aren't we? And actually, that is the surprising thing about what happens next. So in verse 15 in chapter 5, the overseers who are Israelites, they go to Pharaoh and they say to him, well, surely there's some mistake here, Pharaoh. Could we just sort out this, this little problem? Because you, you appear to have given us an instruction to, to find our own straw, and now you're, you're grumbling about the fact that we're not making so many bricks. Can we just sort this out? But do you notice as they kind of represent themselves back to Pharaoh you know, via his messengers they speak of themselves as pharaoh's servants so literally they're calling themselves pharaoh worshippers and pharaoh slaves same thing but as far as they're concerned that is who they are they don't they, they don't have a problem with that they don't have a problem with defining themselves in that way you know they don't like the working conditions that's clear but being a pharaoh worshipper is just who they are. And, and note that where they take their complaint after that, so they take it to Moses and Aaron, verse 21. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, you know, thanks for nothing, guys. You're making our lives miserable by stirring things up like this. And that's followed by Moses then taking that on board and saying exactly the same back to God. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on his people and you have not rescued your people at all. So do you see? They're blind to what is really going on. Their chief concern is their comfort. That's what they were complaining about. 
But when comfort does not immediately follow, they carry on complaining. And again, isn't that so often what the human heart is like and what we see in ourselves so often? You know, Lord, I've, I've been praying for your help to be more patient and I've been praying for your help to be less addictive to my phone and more attentive to my family. And all that's happened is the opposite. Life has got more stressful, not easier at all. And do you know what? I feel like giving up completely. What do we need when we feel like that? Well, we need what God's people needed here. We need to know God. We need to know the God who is worth serving. So secondly, finally, whom will you serve? Here's the second choice, a loving God. Chapter 6, 1 to 12. So verse 1. Watch this, says God. But then he doesn't actually do anything. What he does is he talks and he says who he is. So he says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by the name the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. Now, hang on a minute. Are you sure about that, God? Because we can see your name, the Lord, in capital letters like that in the book of Genesis. And the Lord in capital letters is how we translate Yahweh, or in older translations it was Jehovah, the name of God. And he has this name that is used throughout the Old Testament. And it is true that the the name is there in Genesis, but what he's saying is that there is more to a name than simply the letters and the word that make up that name. You know that thing that people do when they say, you know, mention my name and everything will be okay. So we had that once, Sue and I. We had a a family member set up a a free meal for us in an extremely expensive restaurant that she was, you know, she was working in the company that that owned the restaurant. Um, You know, the kind of restaurant was well beyond our budget at that point. We were delighted to be sort of given this meal and we were just told, "Just, just mention my name, it will all be fine. So we merrily, you know, went in and we, we ordered, had all kinds of amazing food and, and drink, and it came to the end of the meal, and they presented the bill, and I said, <clears throat> I think Louise has got this covered. And they said, who? No, Louise, Louise has got this covered. And Louise, Louise? And he said, I'm sorry, I've got no idea who you're talking about. So we shifted slightly uneasily in our chairs and we began to wonder if it was going to be beans on toast for the next few months. And then I said, well, do you think you might be able to go and get your boss? (laughs) Have a chat with him instead. And it turned out we had to go up the chain by about three bosses before finally someone knew who Louise was and then suddenly, just like that, everything changed. And uh, the manager came out, gave us another free drink and it was all smiles and charm and everything was fine and happy. And, you know, please do send my regards to Louise. So I think it turned out was his boss. You see, there is power in a name. But it's not just the name itself, is it? There's power in what the name is associated with. What the name stands for. Because that's what happens here with the Lord. Because what he then does is he explains what he had not revealed before. So even though his his name had been there, he now is showing what it means to be the Lord. 
So I am a God of covenant promise, he's saying, verse 4. I've heard their groaning. And so verse 6, look what it means to be the Lord. Can you see? He says, I will, over and over. Look at what he says, I will do. He, he says, broadly speaking, he says, I will do three things. I will redeem you, which means I will buy you out of slavery. I will adopt you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God, verse 7. And I will give you the land I promised your ancestors. Redemption, adoption, possession. This is what it means to be the Lord's. So do you see the choice that God's people face and that we are presented with also today? The choice is, are you going to serve the tyrant Pharaoh who will squeeze everything he can from you and leave you for dead? Or are you going to serve God who loves you? That is the choice. And the thing is, that, as we thought about at the start, they both involve a kind of freedom and a kind of constraint. So there is a kind of freedom in serving Pharaoh. It's a freedom, first of all, from God and his constraints. If that's not what you want, it's a freedom from the life that God calls his people to follow. And we see this more and more through the book of Exodus. You know, going God's way is going to mean traveling through the wilderness, trusting him, depending on him, on the way to this promised land that he's promised to give them. So it's not just instant bliss, instant heaven right here, right now. Serving Pharaoh is a freedom from having to do anything other than just stay as you are. And for some people then, and for some people now, well, that, that is kind of attractive. But of course, it's a freedom that comes with hidden, devastating constraints. A life of miserable servitude to a tyrant who doesn't care about you, who has no interest in you, and then you die. But what about God, you see? Again, there is both freedom and constraints. There is freedom from that life under the tyranny of sin and idols. But there is then the constraint of going God's way and worshipping him and being his servant or slave even instead of Pharaoh's. So which is it going to be? That's the question. Who would you rather have as your master? You're going to have someone. What we want to say, actually, especially today, is, no, well, why can't I be my own master? I'll, I'll be in charge, thanks very much. But what we don't see is that, actually, that in itself is, 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 again, just another kind of tyranny with all kinds of problems. You know, I think I'm my own boss, but in reality, what, what's actually going on when I say my own boss is I'm a slave to my own appetites, as it were, whatever they happen to be. I'm, I'm a slave to my passions for, for Netflix and fast food and fleeting pleasure wherever I can find it. You know, and there's no meaning or purpose, no worth to anything I do, because I'm just serving myself. I'm the judge of where anything's worth something, so if I think it's worth something, it is, but that doesn't really help me find ultimate meaning and purpose in my life. I'm a slave, still. We all serve someone or something. But here's the point. There is someone worth serving, and that is the God who loves us. The God we now know as the one who sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us so that we could be adopted as his children and inherit the new heavens and the new earth as our possession. It's totally undeserved. It's free. And so 
God says, let my people go that they may hold a festival for me so that we might worship him. That is why he sent Jesus. And that is what's going to make the difference when we're facing temptation and we doubt that God's way is good and we think, I'm not sure I can trust him. We need to know who he is. Now, the reading, as we heard, it ends with God's people still not convinced that they can believe or trust him. And Moses with them. Which again is exactly what we're like so often. Exodus is about the patience of God in the face of our continual failure to trust him. But God's people then needed to see what they had not yet seen. That what God says he does. And he's a God who keeps his promises. And that is what the rest of Exodus is about. Pharaoh says, I don't know him so I won't do what he says. Well, if we're trusting Jesus today, we can say, no, we do know him. And if we, if we don't know him, then Jesus is where we need to look. And the more we know him, the more then when we face the temptation to say God's way is not the best way, well, the more we know him and what he's like, the more we'll be able to say, no, actually, I'm going to trust him. I know that he loves me. His way might be hard, but... Let me weigh it up and see how hard it is not to know him and to remain enslaved to my own passions or, or whatever it is. Instead, realize here is a loving God who says, you can serve me, and as you serve me, you are truly free. And find when we do that, that we have true freedom that starts now and lasts forever into eternity with the God who says I will redeem you, adopt you as my children, and give you the new heavens and the new earth as your possession. Let's pray now. Father God, thank you for who you are, for what it means for you to be the Lord, who says, I will redeem you, I will adopt you, I will possess, give you what I have promised as your possession. Father, we thank you for that the wonderful promise and what it says about you. And how you are someone we can trust, even when life is hard, even when life seems to get harder, as we trust you. So we thank you. And help us, particularly if we've not yet seen clearly who Jesus is, to put our trust in him. And to see that through him we can know you. And be truly free. Amen. Oh,